Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see the syphilitic shrinking obelisk. The white man's wilting dick. Of CD game show trolls, the smiling lie of the televised hive. The witches are watching with their thousand eyes. Witches are watching with their thousand eyes. We smell rotten teeth. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 55. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Artist and previous podcast guest Scott Shaw has finished the cover artwork for Headquartered, the book on the monkey's solo career, and it should be out in February or March of 2020. I won't be making the trek to Beetlefest, unfortunately, but my co-author and also previous podcast guest Michael A. Ventrella will be attending and selling copies there. I've gotten the final art pieces and text from Victoria Biggers for the TTV scrapbook, so I'll be finalizing that book and turning it in soon. I still plan to work on some new Harvey comic stories with previous podcast guest Eric Schenauer. And I'm still waiting for the Warren Kramer book from my publisher, and I'm still working on my own Light Up Your Life travel agency, and of course, the Mad Book. This episode will continue where we left off last week, covering the history of the legendary artist Wally Wood. Last week we covered Wood's career at EC. This week we'll cover Wood's career at Mad Magazine. Here he is again, the director of the Wallace Wood estate, J. David Spurlock. So Gaines... The way he came into being publisher, he was actually fairly young for a publisher. His father was one of the most important people in, in the early days of comics. That was Max Gaines. Bill Gaines is the son. Max Gaines is the father. And Max Gaines was connected to the beginning of comics, uh, the beginning of Superman, all kinds of things. And then and he, had, he was founder of All-American Comics, which eventually became part of DC. All-American had Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman. Right. Those were not originally DC. Those were all American characters. And they were a sister. All America was a partnership he Gaines had with one of the other partners at DC. And then eventually they bought him out. And then he launched what was uh, EC, which originally the EC was supposed to stand for um, educational comics. He wanted to do very wholesome comics. They had picture stories from the Bible, picture stories for from history, and then they had like uh, fairy tale, childhood things like Land of the Lost and stuff. But he died unexpectedly in a boating accident. His son at the time had been in college studying. He was going to be a high school history teacher. Mm-hmm. And he was just about to launch his career as a as a school teacher when his father unexpectedly died in this boating accident and so suddenly as as the only son the family business was and he and his mother's livelihood was thrust in his lap 
he was not really interested in comics before that and suddenly he was looking at it and those super wholesome comics his father had were publishing under the ec banner were not really successful they weren't doing well and he he got feldstein in there pretty early I think maybe originally as a uh, as an artist, and then he figured out that Feldstein could also write and edit. Right. And so Feldstein became a full time guy in the office, and got pretty much his right hand man, fairly fairly quickly. Well, they decided to do comics that they thought would be interesting not what some businessman's idea of what a 10 year old kid might want to read but they thought if they could do comics that they found interesting that other people you know could relate to it too and 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 like i said earlier they they started doing comics that were much more mature yeah uh and and much more literary uh and and with a lot more depth than than your regular comics so that's how uh, Gaines got into it. Well, he's to, he tell so he told Orlando after he got the ultimatum after Gaines got the ultimatum from Kurtzman, you know, either give me con- control of Mad or I'm leaving to start a magazine with Hefner. Uh, and he's commiserating with his best friend Joe Orlando, who's also happens to be Wood's best friend. And he told Orlando. If if Wood leaves with Harvey, I'm going to shut it down, hmm. and I'm going to go go to teaching school, which is what he originally had planned, you know, uh, to do before his father had died. And so, uh, like I said, Orlando recommended he hire Feldstein back, and Lyle Stewart recommended he hire Feldstein back. Mm-hmm. But because Feldstein's humor mag had not been a success, uh, he didn't think that Feldstein on his own could keep it going. But he thought that, uh, you know, with a dependable, talented fellow like Feldstein in the office, if they could keep their star, would mm-hmm. that they could they could make it, they could have a shot of making it without Harvey, mm-hmm. and so. There would not have been any more mad if Wood had left with Harvey, ah, and that, okay. and so Harvey and Hefner. Hefner was from Chicago. Yeah, that they opened a little office in Manhattan for the new magazine Trump, and Hefner happened to be, and so they got got Wood to do a story for the first issue of Trump and it was in a style he, he actually did it. it it may be the first it could it could be arguable but it's something worth researching what is the first fully painted comics in American history hmm. and there there was a feature some people have brought up a feature that ran I think it ran in Look or Life magazine. There was kind of a sequential illustrated feature that some people that 
was painted and ran in full color that some people have, have discussed. What and and then this there's this thing that Wood did for Trump number one. Mm-hmm. It was it was basically a takeoff on Hansel and Gretel. Mm-hmm. And, and um, but he did it like an animation style where he did the inking and the blocking with the with the paint on the color paint on the back, the black outlines on the of the acetate and the and the color uh, painting on the back, and then he paint like a background, like a, like you do for an animation background, mm-hmm. and then the, and then the figures would be on acetate, and it was supposed to be like like you're looking at stills from an animated film or you're looking at storyboards for an animated film or right. something like right. that. But it, it was fully, full color. It ran in full color. It was fully painted. And uh, so I think that that's a contender or it should be at least part of the discussion on what was the first. The, the thing that would keep it possibly out of the running is that since it was kind of presented as you know, as if it were stills from an animated feature or storyboards for an animated feature, they're not using traditional word balloons. Right, right. So, yeah. so somebody might say, well, you know, we think the first painted comic should have <laughs> word balloons, that that's a component that defines the comic's uh, uh, art form. But, you know, nobody would say that Prince Valiant is in comics, and there are no word balloons in Prince Valiant. Right, Yeah. So, so that that's something that would have to be debated, but it's in there anyway. So Wood goes to deliver this job. He agreed to do a job for Harvey, his pal, uh, for this first issue. And when he gets there, Hefner's there. <laughs> he was in from out of town. He was in New York. He's at the office, and this again is all me reporting what I got from Joe Orlando Joe Orlando is my source on this because Wood told him what happened mm-hmm. and so Wood goes in to deliver the Hanson Gretel job for Trump one and he and, and he told Orlando that they literally cornered him <laughs> that Kurtzman and Hefner backed Wood into a corner and Kurtzman, with Kurtzman doing the talking, because Kurtzman, you know, and Wood knew each other so well, but Hefner's there for backup. Pushing Wood, you have to come exclusive with us. Uh-huh. And, and, and they were just not taking no for an answer. Wow. And Wood's response was, Harvey, if you want me to do work for you, I'll do work for you. But I'm not going to turn my back on Bill. He's been too good to me. And then Harvey had hit him again. You've got to come exclusive with us. You know, we can get you work in Playboy, too. That's good money work. And that's that's a, that's even bigger audience than that. And Wood would come back, Harvey, you want me to do work for you? I'll do work for you. But I'm not going to turn my back on Bill. All right? So Wood stayed. They rehired Feldstein. And Mad went on to sell even more books after Harvey left than before Harvey left, wow. and that's how Wood saved Mad Magazine. Wow! And that and you answered my question already. The question that arose while we were talking here is, why did Wood do the one issue of Trump? But he did that because of what you said. So. <laughs> 
you know, so, uh, because I always wondered about that. I said, if he's so loyal, why did he do the Trump? But I get it. He yeah. was being loyal to everyone. He was loyal to both of them. Until he was cornered. I get it. You know, so, you know. And, yeah. uh, well, he he told he told him, I'll do, Harvey, I'll do work for you. But I think what happened was, in there is a letter that has surfaced. I believe, if I remember correctly, it's a letter from... Hefner mm-hmm. to Kurtzman where they're discussing that it could help secure the talent I think Hefner is suggesting the idea look if it helps us get if it helps us sabotage mad if it helps us sink that our competitors ship <laughs> so that so that we have less competition and a better chance of making it on our own if we to help get the talent that was the the getting the talent exclusively was the way that they were going to sink mad uh-huh. and by sinking mad then that would then they'd have less competition and they they would have a much better shot at being a big hit success. Mm-hmm. Right? That was their that was their business plan. Mm-hmm. So to accomplish that, Hefner said that he didn't see. I don't know if Severn was ever named because Severn was already gone. Right. But they may have mentioned he may have mentioned Elder that he didn't really see Elder Style working that well as a standalone cartoonist for Playboy, but he said he said Wood and and Davis mm-hmm. he could see and that that Harvey could tell them if they came with us, Hefter and Kurtzman, that they could get work out of Playboy. And that would be that'd be quite a feather in their cap because the Playboy cartoonists were very well, well respected and they were very well paid, right. and they got they got good, top quality color reproduction and great distribution. So that that would definitely be a feather in any cartoonist cap to have Playboy amongst their clients. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a great historic artifact, mm-hmm. uh, and and it is very suspicious that because wood there is it, wood is so versatile <laughs> he can do real he can do realism he could do superheroes he could do science fiction he can do humor with the best of them mm-hmm. all right there it's very rare to find someone who is equally versed in realism as they are in humor right and uh but uh, as wood was so very few people were as well versed in both the humor and the realism Mm-hmm. But one of the other areas, you know, you get science fiction and all these different genres, Wood could work in, and humor. But there was nothing, none of those were, uh, could outdo his, his, his ability to portray beautiful women. Mm-hmm. You know, he was very famous his entire career. In fact, I met the, famous film director Terry Gilliam mm-hmm. and we ended up talking about Wood and he said that Wood was his first pornography <laughs> he said when he was a kid he loved Mad Magazine but there was something he was just like coming into puberty 
and he's like there was something about those wood girls some people call them woods va 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 boom girls right right <laughs> and uh you know they're all on high heels they've all got perfect posture and they just exude charm every 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 line that he inked was just as charming as it could be these gorgeous little cutie girls all over the place mm-hmm. you know they may they might look a little bit like Marilyn or any of the other bomb bomb bombshells coming out of the 50s um but they were just adorable and um in fact he said his father caught him one time ogling wood-drawn women in mad magazine i think he gave him a good whipping <laughs> uh and, and forbade him from bringing another mad magazine into the house wow <laughs> so so wood was perfect for Playboy, right? Would would and, and it would have been very natural, and it's actually I I would go to the point of calling it suspect. And after seeing that historical document, that letter, mm-hmm. and knowing between between seeing the, the letter that confirms that part of the offer to try to lure Davis and Wood away from Mad was to offer him work from for Playboy mm-hmm. was. And then why did Wood not get work out of Playboy? Mm-hmm. And even later, when Trump failed, and Trump regularly fails, yeah. the, uh, the um, let's just take that one out. That's a little too much. Let's just say when Trump failed. <laughs> when Trump failed, you know, Harvey, part of why Trump failed was that Kurtzman had a, I mean, uh, Hefner had a little tough, little stint with Playboy. There was something going on. There may have been some local suits about, you know, uh, what's allowed or not allowed on the newsstand in certain jurisdictions or something. It may have tied up his, his, his pocketbook for a little while. So the, the cash flow kind of came to uh, came to a halt, and Trump was not making big money. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, was, I, it may have just come close to breaking even or something like that. Within a year or two, it probably would have been making money. And earlier, Hefner had enough money to to go that year or two, but at this point, for whatever reason, cash flow was uh, uh, had slowed down considerably. Right. Right. So Trump ended, but Kurtzman, Hefner still loved Kurtzman, and so they ended up creating the feature Little Annie Fanny, which right. ran in Playboy. Right. And and not and most of that was it was be Kurtzman. Uh, Kurtzman and Elder both wrote on it because Elder is a very funny guy. Mm-hmm. And then Kurtzman would do layouts and then Elder would paint the finished art. Yeah. But it became very elaborate with a lot of gags in the backgrounds and crowded backgrounds. It's a lot of work. It's tons of work. Yeah. So they started bringing in some other guys to help and they brought in Jack Davis. Right. They brought in Russ Heath. Right. And for a very short little period, for a while, they even had some help from Frank Frazetta. Right. So it would have been the most natural thing in the world for a guy who can draw and paint women like Wally Wood to do work for Playboy, you know, whether it was spot cartoons uh, that they were so famous for or whether it was working with Kurtzman on Little Annie Fanny. Never happened. Right. Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I think they held a grudge. Yeah. Because he, despite the fact that he says, you want me to work for you, I'll work for you. But because he would not turn his back on games and go exclusive yeah. with uh, Trump and Hefner, they pulled the offer. 
Yeah. And so, uh, and and I know that Wood and Kurtzman still respected each other after that, but they weren't. They didn't have the same quite the camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Uh, like say, for instance, the Woods used to put on. They'd regularly put on like a New Year's Eve party at their place in Manhattan, and the Kurtzmans were regulars, and they came they came year after year after year. But I think that stopped after the little tussle <laughs> to do Trump magazine. So so that basically, it seems that Wood got blackballed uh, at uh, Playboy because of his refusal to turn his back on Bill Gates. Right. It, it, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me. Right. It seems like it. It just seems interesting that even later on, maybe like in the seventies, or you know, that there might have been a change of heart. But you know, hey, grudges are well, and that could have, and and in that period, they still would have been doing Lil Annie Fanny. Right. So he could have he could have come into the Lil Annie Fanny just like Davis did. Right. But uh, but it didn't. So I I, I think there was uh, a, a little uh, resentment. Right. And uh, I think it def- it did adversely affect the relationship between Kurtzman and Wood. Right. Uh, now, one footnote on that that Wood saving Matt. This this is this is my story. Nobody else has presented this story. If anyone else has presented it, they got it from me. <laughs> right. I got it from Orlando, mm-hmm. and and different also historical documents like the the letter from from uh, Hefner to uh, to Kurtzman about Wood so that's a historical document you know but I also got the story straight from Orlando who was involved he was a participant um, and I originally reported it in the in the uh, I think it was about 2004 when we released the book Wally's world it was nominated for an Eisner award for book of the year mm-hmm forget what we lost to that year but it was nominated and that book is scarce right now but I hope to get a uh, an updated expanded version of it out uh, with hopefully within the next year or so oh cool so (laughs) so that is and it is the only full there are a number of excellent books out on wood Mm -hmm. but that's the only one that is is actually a full length biography got it most of the others they're almost kind of like an eye candy book. Yeah. Uh, there was one called Woodwork that was based on an art exhibit in Spain. And so the commentary there is basically elaborate commentary to comment on the exhibition. And it was a fabulous exposition, mm-hmm. and it's an excellent book. Um, but it's not... It's not really a biography. It's mm-hmm. it's a a very elaborate, uh, luxurious uh, exhibit catalog. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And then um, there was another book. Uh, Woods' friend Bob Stewart, his friend and associate Bob Stewart, mm-hmm. uh, was was central to putting together a book that was originally called Against the Grain. Hmm. And originally that book was going to be published by Fantagraphics, but the book was so big and sprawling, <laughs> it sat on the shelf at Fantagraphics for like 15 years or something crazy like that. And them saying they, they it was such a big project, they couldn't quite get their head around how to put the design together. Hmm. And so finally, 
uh, Joe Orlando got involved and demanded the material back. Hmm. And uh, they got the material back. At that point, Roger Hill, he had been talking to Bob Stewart about the book. He wanted to help see if he could help get it on track. And, um, and Bob was so frustrated, he didn't even want to talk about the book. It was like a, it was like a pain <laughs> in his thigh that this book had languished for yeah. so many, languished, uh, languished for so many years at Fantagraphics. So he, he, it was too painful for him to even discuss, but he told, he deputized Roger, uh, that, that, you know, once they got the material away back from Fantagraphics, that Roger could, uh, shop it. So mm-hmm. Roger came out to San Diego and I bumped into him there and he had some of the materials with him and uh, we looked at it and I'm like, I'm like, I'll publish this book. I'd love to. And so uh, he says, well, I just had a meeting with Tomorrow's. Mm. And, and so they said they're going to call me back and let me know and so they kind of have first dibs on it. If they pass, you know, I'll call you. I said, great. Well, they didn't pass. Hmm. So they published it. But tomorrow's, they go, they don't want to publish anything that's anywhere close to risque. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Very, you know, I, I think they see their publications, and their publications are very nostalgia-based. Okay. Their audience is, you know, people who were reading comics in the 60s or 70s or 80s, somewhere between the 60s and 80s, and they want to take them back to that happy place. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're not looking to stir up controversy. They're not looking to... I mean, you know, some of the stuff comes in from time to time. You know, John Cook, you know, he likes to stir up a little controversy every now and then. He's one of the editors there (laughs) at Comic Book Creator Magazine. Mm -hmm. And then, but Generally, John Morrow likes to keep everything very, very clean, not too controversial. Um, so basically, they put out this big book on wood with nothing risque. <laughs> and wood did, he was famous for his sexy women. And it's kind of, it's not complete <laughs> if you don't, if you don't have that. So, uh, Stewart was a bit disappointed in the, you know, the paper wasn't very thick and different stuff. At that time, they were printing, they weren't doing much color and they were printing domestically and the budgets were tight and everything. But anyway, so the book came out. But then years later, very recently, right around the, there was a deal to bring it back into publication back at Fanographics, where it was originally going to be published. <laughs> but now, now that Tomorrow's had shown them how they laid the book out Pentagram's like oh we could have done that <laughs> and we wouldn't and we wouldn't have edited out all the sexy stuff right so so after I don't know how many years ten, another 10 or 15 years after the tomorrow's version uh, Stewart made a deal to republish it through Fantagraphics. well they they wanted to change the name and cha- add some more art to basically probably resell it to some of the same people who bought it the first time, you know, kind of a revised edition. Right. And so, and by that time, I was work, I was work now working on behalf of the Wood Estate, so I was more involved with the, the Fantagraphics than the other one. And, uh, and unfortunately, Bob died 
in the midst of that production. Mm, okay. And in the end, and it came as a shock to a lot of people, including the Wood Estate, but in the end, they split the book up into two hardbacks instead mm. of one. And that, and they changed the title to, I believe, Life and Legend of Wallace Wood. So there's a, a volume one and volume two. So that's a great book, a two-volume book. Uh, but in all the text that's there, you get a Stuart wrote a kind of mini bio. That was what the section of the book that he actually wrote. The rest of it he edited, but like guest essays from assistants, mostly assistants of Wood in the late 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. But my book, we had, I worked directly with the family, and my, my co-author, Steve Starker, was close friends with Wood's brother. He lived near Wood's brother in Connecticut, uh, Glenwood. They were very close. Mm -hmm. So while I was working, I was working on a book a biography of Wood, and I was interviewing Orlando and Frazetta, uh, Steranko, Al Williamson, Dan Atkins, you know, Wood's contemporaries. Mm -hmm. I was focusing on the other famous artists that were contemporaries of his, and then Starger, who was close with Wood's brother, was focusing on the earlier history, the, the early family history. Mm -hmm. And so he actually traveled to Minnesota and and talked to some cousins and relatives and looked at the original home sites and stuff like that and his original high school and everything and stuff like that and found his high school annuals and stuff things and and so he did a, a lot of interviews with Glenwood and then also with Wood's first wife and then I would also you know visit and 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 talk to her and get more information and catalog different things like you know she still had some of Wood's books some of his records so to get a feel for what kind of music he was listening to what kind of books was he reading things like that so all that information so we have uh, in in the Wally's World biography you know it's a true from beginning to end biography with working directly with the people who were involved cool uh, okay. so there are a bunch of good Wood, wood books out and mm -hmm. those are you know, the Wood Sketchbook's good, too. I have a lot of interviews. We put a lot of interviews in there. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an interview with Orlando, an interview with Williamson. Uh, Lynn Brown uh, Wood helped uh, uh, create Mars Attacks with Lynn Brown and Woody Gilman for mm -hmm. Tops. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to get, you know, that story straight from Lynn Brown. And Lynn Brown, by the way, uh, Wood, without Lynn's knowledge... Right before it went to press, Wood changed the civilian name of Dynamo in the Thunder Agents to Lynn Brown. <laughs> and Lynn was kind of embarrassed by it a little bit because uh, he thought, because he wrote some of those Dynamo stories. Mm -hmm. And so he thought that people would think he did it because he was egotistical when he didn't do it at all. Wood did it as kind of a gag on Lynn. Uh, but it's a good name. It's Lynn Brown. It's mm -hmm. a good name. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I don't know where I was going or how I got there. But well, you're just anyway. talking about the different biographies and books that were out there, uh, just yeah, and that you're bringing back Wally's World uh, uh, into print again and everything, which is great. Um, I guess I can get us back on track by just asking, you know, this is like a two-part question. Um, why did Wood leave Mad in the '60s, and why did he go to Marvel and work on Daredevil? What's that story there? And then we could talk about Daredevil. All right, all right. So, okay, to wrap up, Mad. Okay, so okay. Wood. So now, oh, I wanted to add this on on the saving saving of Mad. Okay. 
Oh, I know how we got to Wally's World. It was that I was saying that this story, I'm, it's my story. If anyone, oh yeah, from your me, book, yes, yeah. <laughs> whether they cite me as they're supposed to or not, that's the story. That's the the source of the story is the biography I wrote, Wally's World. Right. Now I've I have discussed this online in different Wood or EC related groups. I have discussed it in interviews, but basically I am the source on that story, and my source sources include Joe Orlando, who was one of the participants, and also historical documents from Kurtzman and, and Hefner and, mm-hmm. and interview, interviews with Gaines, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it, it's a story that everyone should know, uh, but, you know, if you quote it, if you bring it up, please do remember to, to cite my research there. Of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> now, so he's in to wrap up the story of how he saved Mad. I think it's important to to mention this is that even though this whole this transition was, as I described earlier, sweating bullets, and I think I used some other terminology too. <laughs> uh, it was a harrowing experience for Bill Gaines. Uh, I assure you. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, he was looking at losing the family company, and and by this point, he he was into it. Even though he came into publishing comics unexpectedly, it was not something he wanted to do. It's not something he sought to do. It was thrust upon him. Once he started creating interesting comics, he got into it, and mm-hmm. he was very good at it. And so, but it, it was so it would have been very sad for him to, after these years of investment at this point, to lose a major money making operation like Mad and to return to teaching high school, which is what he studied to do in the first place before his father unexpectedly died and he inherited Mad Magazine. So, it, it wasn't something he wanted to happen, but that's what he saw. He saw uh, Kurtzman leaving as, as I, I think the words he put it into was mad walking out the door. <laughs> I mean, Kurtzman walking out the door equated to mad walking out the door, and that's the only business left that in his publishing business that all the other publications had long since been canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if he kept wood... He thought they'd have a shot, and it worked. Mm-hmm. He, he was able to keep Wood with Orlando's help working on Woody, and Wood's loyalty was key, and, and Felstein coming back. But the coda on that story of Wood uh, saving Mad is that this all happened in a very, very brief amount of time. It was a concentrated, dramatic... Uh, 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 nerve-wracking just a couple of days. Mm-hmm. That's that's how quick it happened. The public never had any idea of what was going on behind the scenes. And as Gaines said, the public really didn't know who Harvey Kurtzman was. The only people that tended to know is if they read the credits in Mad or if they read one of the newspaper or magazine articles about Mad that said the editor in Mad is Harvey Kurtzman and he had this to say. Right. Blah, 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 blah. Okay? So, so people in the industry knew that that Kurtzman was the the brain behind Mad, but but the general readership, they would see the signatures on the story, or they'd see the bylines, who's writing or drawing the story, 
So if they knew Kurtzman's name, they probably knew him best as a writer. Yeah. That he was writing a number of the stories. And but 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 the artists they love and and Wood was top of the pops. But it is important to note this happened, and I'll tell you one reason is because we don't live in a vacuum. There's <laughs> other historians around. Every now and then we'll have a different point of view on something. And and when I have brought this up before, one of the possibly the greatest EC historian is is Grant Geisman. Mm-hmm. And and he, you know, I think he recognizes that I am dedicated to Wood and I want Wood's point of view remembered and Wood's contributions remembered. But, you know, one time we were chatting and you know, in an E C group online and and I was going over some of this and he's like He's like, yeah, but, you know, the whole thing happened in practically less time than it took you to tell the stories. <laughs> well, so, you can so say like, that's true, yes. But... Like, uh, I, think, I think Kurtzman gave his ultimatum on maybe Wednesday. Yeah. And then, uh, and, and, and I, I think Gaines had basically till Thursday to make up his mind. So... So on Wednesday, after Gaines gives the ultimatum, I mean, after Kurtzman gives Gaines the ultimatum, Gaines is already talking to Orlando. Yeah. All right. By Thursday, he's Orlando has told him two things. Uh, I think you should hire uh, Feldstein back. And yes, on your, I will talk to Wood, you know, and try to keep him from going exclusive with Harley. Okay, so Orlando's now talking to Wood, and then Gaines starts talking to Lyle Stewart, mm-hmm. and Lyle Stewart uh, is in full agreement with Orlando that you know his best bet is to hire Feldstein back because they have a working relationship. Feldstein did work on a humor book for, even though it wasn't as successful as Mad, he did work on a humor book for Gaines before, and so they see that as the chance. But but Gaines still decreed if I if Wood doesn't stay he's our star if he doesn't stay he didn't have faith that Feldstein alone could save that magazine right but that with Feldstein and Wood that he he would continue see if they could salvage the magazine without Harvey so but it did happen as Grant pointed out it happened very quickly uh so by Thursday he surely told, or whatever day, I think, I, roughly, this is all rough estimate off the top of my head, so if, if Kurtzman gave his ultimatum on Wednesday, by Thursday, Kane says, I can't, Harvey, I can't give you 51%, and so Harvey's like, I, I'm out of here, and he knows he's in hot water, that Harvey's going to try to take all the, the uh, talent with him. Now, now I'm going to cite Grant on this, he's, I believe he said that Gain, that Feldstein was in the office by Monday. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think yeah. that so Bill probably called Feldstein Friday. Yeah, and Feldstein said yes, and Feldstein was in the office working the following Monday. So that whole that whole thing, the saving a man, uh, would would probably go from like a Wednesday to the Monday. <laughs> but they didn't, less now, they than a didn't week. know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they they didn't know that not only would sales 
stay where it was with Kurtzman, but you know nobody knew that they would continue to grow. See, it was ongoingly growing under Kurtzman. Yeah. But nobody. But he just hoped that it would stay at least as good as it was when Kurtzman left, or you know enough to, for him to make a living. And I think his mother was still depending on. Yeah, if, I don't know when she passed, but she was probably still depending on the income from the family company as well. Right. Um, so, but that whole then, even though it was sweating bullets, uh, chewing fingernails, you know, on the verge of a nervous breakdown, horrific couple of days, it, it did all happen within a couple of days. Right. But it took some time after that to keep selling issues to see, you know, could, would they be as successful as they were under Kurtzman? And yes, not only were did they, it didn't just level off. The growth that they had been experienced continued to grow. Yeah. Uh, and now that's when they started hiring. When so, Elder and and Davis and Kurtzman left, so they started hiring more talent. Right. Orlando started doing stuff for Mad. Uh, they Drucker came in. Um, Who's some of the other uh, earliest guys? Um, well, Jaffe left for a while, and then he came back. And then they got Mingo for the covers. They got yeah. uh, writers like Paul Lakin and Frank Jacobs. Yeah. And, so there were top talents, yeah. new top talents that yeah. came in. Now, then you come to the question of why did Wood leave? Yes. And he was there. He was there for a number of years after Kurtzman left. Right. Uh and so, but this is, this gets heavy. Um, so, we will be back after this message. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics in Mountain View and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <laughs> Fun Ideas Podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982, online at leescomics.com. And now back to the Fun Ideas Podcast. Wood, in many ways, Wood was a very quiet fellow. Mm-hmm. Okay? You watch Seinfeld? Yes. Mm-hmm. You remember the close talker? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you remember you remember the low talker? Yes. That's two different that's two different people. Yeah, yeah. That's two two different episodes, two different people, two yeah. different terminologies. Yeah. The low talker was the a female friend of Kramer's who was trying to sell a puffy shirt. Mm-hmm. That looked like something a pirate would wear in the seventeen hundreds or right. something. Right. And and she was at with Jerry at a party talking to him. And he couldn't understand what she was saying. Oh, oh, that's right. And and Jerry's Jerry's nodding his head, you know, just trying to make conversation with someone he he can't actually hear. And and then she's all excited and thanks him, and she's happy. And and then later, 
uh, Kramer comes over. Oh, it's fantastic. He says, what's fantastic? You're going to wear the puffy shirt on the Today Show. Right. <laughs> I'm not wearing that puffy shirt. Oh, you agreed to it. She's on top of the world. You'd break, you can't break her heart. You, you promised to wear it. I can't wear a puffy shirt on the Today Show. <laughs> puffy so sleeves. anyway, so that's the, that's the, well, Wood was a quiet talker yeah. like that. Yeah. You know? And so you would you would have to be pretty close to him to, to hear him. And he, and a lot of artists, they can have a bit of ego. They can know their stuff is good and that know that they are one of the, the top people in their profession. And so they start, you know, they start to have a certain amount of healthy ego in that regard. But on the other regard, a lot of artists are very introverted. They're very quiet. They could be shy. They could be, uh, have an inferiority complex. In a, and, and it's possible. And there's many artists I've worked with, you know, some of them can be, have an inferiority complex and a big ego at the same time. Right. Amazingly. <laughs> they, they, seem, they seem diametrically opposed, but it is possible. And so Wood knew he was famous. Knew, Wood knew he was good. Uh, but he was also sensitive. He was also sensitive. And so Orlando related to me how Wood saved Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. And so Orlando knows it. Orlando told me there is no reason for us to ever think that Wood didn't know it. Okay? Right. It's not that Gaines would say, you know, give him a big Christmas present and say with a note saying, thank you so much for saving the company. You know, you know some things aren't necessarily discussed. It's not like you win a big trophy that says Wally Wood saved Mad Magazine. You know, we don't we, we don't have that trophy on somebody's mantle. We don't have we don't have a, a letter from Bill Gaines saying I was going to go back to teaching high school if you hadn't stayed and and helped me save the company. You know, we don't have that. But at the same time, there's no reason. Here's a here's a, a indication though. The credits before Kurtzman left listed all the talent in alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. Okay? After Kurtzman left and Wood, what's our ma- mantra for today? Quote, Save Mad Magazine, close <laughs> quote. They moved Wood to the top credit. Oh, that's right. It was no, it was no longer in alphabetical order. They wanted the world to know they were bragging. Hey, we are Mad Magazine, and we've got Wallace Wood. Never Wally. Yeah. It was Wallace. Okay? Mm-hmm. There was never a time you will find a credit for anyone named Wally Wood in Mad Magazine. It's Wallace Wood. Mm-hmm. That's just for the record. Yeah. Uh, that didn't mean that Bill wouldn't call him Wally verbally. Yeah. But in print, it was Wallace. That was a, a, a respect. Right. You know, Wall, right. Well, Wally... Uh, you know, that's that's just, you know, casual, you know, between friends. And there came, I could go off into another thing about the name. There came to be a time where he didn't want to be called Wally. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I think part of it had to do with Stan Lee was printing his credit as Wally, and he wanted his credit printed as Wallace. Oh, okay. And now his family called him Wally. His friends in the 50s called him Wally. But once he got out of the military, and that was before the 50s, he got out of the military like in 48, he started going by Woody. Hmm. And he would tell his friends, call me Woody. Mm-hmm. Now, if they called him Wally, there was no problem. Mm-hmm. But if it was a if it was to be printed, he wanted Wallace. That's the official credit, as Wallace would. Right. But you know, if you called him Wally, it wasn't a problem. But if you asked him, he would say, or if you first met him, he'd say, "Call me Woody." My friends call me Woody. All right. Mm-hmm. But but Orlando called him Wally. Gaines called him Wally. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people called him Wally. But later, into the sixties, he. It started to he, he he got to where he didn't like it, hmm. and I I believe there's is a psychological situation. I think part of it may have been antagonized by by Stan Lee putting in in the written credit listing him as Wally when he wanted to be listed as Wallace, and but I think what it was was I think he connected something about his youth, and he was not tall. Mm-hmm. And he got into a lot of fights because he was a small kid, and he it was he was an easy target for bullying because he was small. And and his older brother came, you know, came to his relief of, in some fights in school. So somehow I think he connected. I suspect that in school some people called him Little Wally Wood to <laughs> eat, to tease him. I think they call him Little. I, you know, they called him Wally at home. It was no problem. But when when a bully at school adds little to it and starts calling him oh, little Wally Wood, what's he going to do? Right. Yeah. Then then it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think I, somehow I think that for some reason it you know it was a problem. It may have been a problem in school, but once he was out of school, nobody's calling him little Wally Wood anymore. But by the time he got out of the military, he was telling everyone to call him Woody. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't in print. He did sign a couple of early stories, Woody. Yeah. Uh, and also, um, Everett Raymond Kensler. He knew Wood. They both worked for Avon in the early 50s, like 1950, 51. And I, and I knew Kensler, and he said he and, he and Wood would go to lunch occasionally. They'd bump into each other at the Avon offices, and then they'd go to lunch together. And uh, he said, "He says, yeah. He always told me call him Woody." I'm mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, that's the way he was." So, but you will frequently you will hear some people who worked with Wood later on, like in the late '60s, saying, "Oh, he hated being called Wally." <laughs> but what I tend to point out to balance the scales, and I'm not saying he didn't. I agree. Yes, there came a time where he he definitely did not want to be called Wally. But if his old friends, who had always called him Wally, called him Wally, he didn't have a problem with it. If Williamson called him Wally, he didn't have a problem. Joe Orlando called him Wally, he didn't have a problem with it. Right. But anyone knew he didn't want him calling him Wally. He'd say, he'd say call me Woody. Uh, but one thing I point out, even to the people who bring that up a lot, and it comes up a lot, and it's natural that it comes up a lot, and it's true. You know, he didn't like calling, at, by that point, he did not like being called Wally. Uh, but even at that point, he recognized there is a magic in the name Wally Wood. 
<laughs> there is it rolls off the tongue uh, in fact one of his idols was Walt Kelly that did the pogo strip mm-hmm. and and Kelly was one of the first cartoonists, newspaper cartoonists that was so popular they started doing hardback collections of their work and when they were they would do these hardback pogo collections sometimes kelly would do something new uniquely for the, that book mm. and one that he did wally wood was the punchline for for the strip <laughs> and, and i guarantee you that that tickled woody pink because that's one of his idols you know his mm-hmm. his idol is paying homage to his name right <laughs> So it was, I forget exactly how it went, uh, but the characters from Pogo were sitting around, they're playing like some kind of word games, and um, and they start talking, I think there's a word for it, uh, words that have repeated letters, mm-hmm. and uh, he says, yeah, and they're, they're playing, they're coming up with, you know, phrases and things with repeated letters and, and things. And, and the ultimate punchline, the last balance says, "Have you ever heard of Wally Wood? <laughs> two, two W's, two L's, two O's. You know." Mm. He says, "Oh, it's a jackpot! I hit the jackpot." You know, it's like a <laughs> scrabble, scrabble thing, a scrabble thing, or something. <laughs> uh, so, and then he actually picked up an award from the National Cartoonist Society, was was presented to him by. Uh, uh, Walt Kelly, and so that that was one of been one of been the the nicest, most pleasant nights of Wood's career. Mm-hmm. Was not only was he winning an award for uh, being the the best uh, artist in 1960, uh, that may have been 65 though the 65 award, but it was actually presented to him by one of his idols in uh, Walt Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, see, I got off on a tangent. Okay, well, how he left man. How he left right? man. <laughs> so, look, Orlando knew he saved man. Gaines knew he saved man. Uh, you know, of course, it wouldn't have been saved if they didn't have Feldstein, you know, to be the man in the office, making sure the deadlines are met and all the work is turned in on time and help him to write stories and organize everything. So, it's, of course, every everything is a team effort. But, you know, now we know what how how Wood contributed to that, and that was a key contribution. And and as Gaines said to Orlando, despite being able to have the opportunity to hire Feldstein back, that wasn't good enough for Gaines. He wasn't prepared to even attempt to move forward unless he could likewise keep Wood. So that's how he said it. How he left is so now they're bringing in these new talents. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, just to name one guy, Mort Drucker. Mm-hmm. That guy's brilliant. Yeah, there he is. When I I met Mort Trucker, and I'm like, what am I going to say to Mort Trucker? <laughs> so I walk up to him and said, Mister Trucker, I'm very pleased to meet you. We shake hands, and I said, you know what I'm about to say is is going to be very difficult for me. He's like, well, what is it? And I said, well, it's going to be very difficult because I'm a huge Jack Davis fan. <laughs> and Mort said, oh, I love Davis. I'm a big Jack Davis fan, too. <laughs> and so um, I said, if, the biggest word in the English language, <laughs> if, if there's a greater caricaturist on the planet, 
more trucker is he and he says oh thank you so much and he just he says that's that's very that's very flattering you know but it's hard for me too because i love davis too but now wood could do good caricatures Mm -hmm. but but davis and drucker that was a a particular strength that they had that they just like blew everyone away and and really trucker trucker really is better than davis as a character as wonderful as davis is and he's one of the best caricatures you could ever find yeah and he was one of the biggest money-making illustrators uh in the history of the world and he did it with caricatures you know for my money even though i i'm a bigger davis fan yeah but to have the objective point of view is just as an objective art critic i will say i prefer i prefer davis for this reason or that reason whatever reason i'm a bigger davis fan but strictly on the subject of good likenesses and caricatures you can't beat more trucker yeah nobody can i have never seen anyone who could be more now frazetta frazetta could do it just as good yeah and uh and he did it he did it painted yeah and drucker drucker can't paint like frank mm-hmm. uh and there was one job and i i think i heard drucker was colorblind there was i know there was one job that drucker got this assignment but it had to be in color he drew it and then he took it over to frazetta and asked frazetta if he would watercolor yeah. i'm uh, not so sure on that one i know severin was colorblind and he's also a good caricaturist but yeah. uh, <laughs> I, i'm not sure about drucker <laughs> yeah well, there's one piece out there that's a Drucker piece, and it's autographed by Frazetta, and everyone always freaks out. Like, I know that's Drucker. I can recognize it. <laughs> and then you have to have someone that knows what the backstory is. Years later, somebody brought it to Frank, said, I heard you worked on that. And he says, yeah, yeah, I colored it. Mort pocketed it over here. He drew it, brought it over here, and asked me if I would put the color in. Mm-hmm. And, well, would you sign it? And so it was signed by Frank, you know, mm-hmm. some years after it was done. Uh, so now there's all these great new talents coming in, and and you've got new new stars are being born, mm-hmm. you know. And so, um, even though Mad paid the best rate in the industry, Mad Mad sold much better than a, a comic book, and they paid much better than a comic book. Mm-hmm. But their rates, I understand, their rates went up significantly shortly after wood left wood left in 64 mm-hmm. and i think i think in 65 or 66 they everyone got a, a good page pay, uh, rate uh, increase mm. so but he was still making much better on that it's a lot more work drawing a page for mad it was very busy work mm-hmm. and there's there's millions of gags in the background and you you know and it's you know the chicken fat they call it chicken fat all right. the little extra <laughs> little things the artists and a lot of that stuff was all put in by the artist it wasn't in the script right you know? so that right, would, right. so you know Kurtzman or Feldstein or whoever the writer was would give you a script but you were actually the artists were actually encouraged and uh, and if not expected to add what came to be known as chicken fat which was extra little gags in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so despite saving it, despite the fact that they put Wood's name first in the credit list in honor of his important position and how he he helped to help them when Kurtzman left, uh, he wasn't getting a better rate. Mm. 
you know, he, I don't, I don't, he didn't, nobody bestowed him with an award he could put on his mantle saying, thank you for saving the company or, you know, a loving cup full of cash or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I think at some point, as he saw the new guys rising, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he felt like somehow, even though he was being paid well for his work, that I, somehow he was being looked over but it, again he had psychological issues that cannot be yeah. ignored and and the first that it seems to start to show up is is connected with his leaving Matt mm. there were no issues that I know of predating that mm. okay until the leaving of Matt and so he had a right to feel funny mm-hmm. but I think that part of the issue was, a lot of guys back then, a lot of a lot of World War Two vets, which he was, you know, they they would tend to keep things bottled up inside. Yeah. You know? And so if you don't talk about it, whether you're talking to your spouse about it, whether you're talking to your priest about it, whether you're talking to a psychologist or psychiatrist about it, if you're not talking to your best friend, if you don't put it into words or let me put it the other way. If you do put it into words, you get a more objective look on it yourself. Right. Because you have to formulize the concept to be able to communicate it to another person. If you don't put it into words to someone else, it's just emotions bottled up inside of you. Mm-hmm. All right? And so it's hard to know exactly what the problem is. Right. If you haven't even put it into words, attempted to put it into words to explain it to someone to someone else, so gradually he he started getting these migraine headaches. Hmm. Have you ever had a migraine headache? Rarely, but yeah, I know what a real bad one is like. <laughs> a migraine headache will take you to the hospital. Yeah, I went to the hospital one time with a migraine headache. And this particular hospital was not known for quick service. Mm. I'm sitting there in the waiting room, and the and this vision, what I'm about to describe, came to me. And this was my experience. This is what I related to. The only thing I could relate the pain I was feeling was that I was a robot. And a steam shovel had knocked about a third of my head off. Hmm. And that my circuitry was loose and, you know, arcing sparks. And that's that that I was messed up to that point. Ooh. But that only that vision, that concept, could I relate to the pain that I was experiencing. Well, once they gave me a shot, within 15 minutes, I was better. But, you know, if you don't have, you know, that's what a, a migraine can be like. Mm-hmm. Now, different people will, you know, you'll hear you, you know, you, you know, they, they used to, you know, be, caught, you know, takeoffs on, you know, housewives having my, oh, my migraine. I'm like, <laughs> if, you know, if it was your migraine, you'd be in a dark room with the shutters drawn and the door closed, cuddled up in a ball, yeah. you know, shaking in pain. Are crying, 
So that's that's a migraine. So he started having these migraines, debilitating. He could not work when he was having one of these migraines. And sometimes they went on for, there was no limit to how long they could go on. His, his mm. first wife told me, we put a chapter, We call, one of the chapters in Wally's world was called The Year of the Headache. Mm. And that was based on her telling me there was one year with, where the migraine never left for the entire year. Wow. And they had, in those days, we're talking 59, 60, 61, somewhere in there, they had nowhere near the medications that we have today. Right. They didn't, they, they didn't have anything that was categorized for stress. They didn't have anything that was categorized for treatment of anxiety. They didn't have things categorized for the treatment of depression. You know, I don't know if the word depression was even used for a uh, official medical uh, uh, diagnosis in those years. Mm-hmm. All right? So the only person, the only thing close, you would have to go to a psychiatrist or psychologist. And, and they had very limited medications. And she told me that the medications that they tried, that all of them just put him to sleep. Hmm. And so while he was asleep, he would have a little bit of relief from this terrible migraine, but it didn't help him get the work done. Hmm. So he, but he, if he drank, hmm. then he wouldn't go to sleep and sometimes the drinking would calm the migraine down enough that he could get some work done mm. but the drinking also adversely affected the work the pain and the drinking both right adversely affected the work so he's suffering from these debilitating migraines and to try to self-medicate he's drinking but the quality of the, he's having trouble meeting the deadlines and the quality of the work is suffering Mm-hmm. All right, all right. So that's bad enough. It gets worse. Hmm. So, well, I don't have my timeline as to the headaches. The headaches probably got worse after what I'm about to tell you. Okay. All right. So, as Mad is doing gangbusters, making big money, Gain starts taking the core people on vacation. Right. And they would go to, like, St. Thomas or some Bahama Island or something on vacation. And they go on this vacation. Now, would like to drink, but I had people tell me, like Al Williamson, he says, I never saw him acting like an alcoholic. I never saw him lose control in any way. Mm-hmm. I saw him drink. You know, he, they used to have uh, New Year's parties. I never saw him drinking more than the other people who were at the parties or acting in any way that, that separated him from anyone else that was partying or drinking at the parties. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, and that's from one of his oldest best friends. Now, at the same time, you know, to balance the scales, at a certain point after Al gets married, he's not spending as much time with Woody. He's not seeing Woody as much. Right. And, and he was talking about the 50s when he would go, they'd be invited, to, he and the Kurtzmans and other people would be invited over to the woods for parties. So he drank without any problem, but he liked to drink. Mm-hmm. And and 
and he he learned to drink in the military mm. and basically for entertainment and I, there's a great story I think it's in Wally's world if not I wrote it elsewhere <laughs> you know probably in a forward I know I think I put the story in the uh, forward to either a Canon collection that Fantagraphics put out or a Shattuck collection that Shattuck was a western character he created that he did in a newspaper strip. At the same time he's doing Cannon and Sally Forth for a military newspaper. He did a Western that didn't last as long and he didn't draw it himself. He kind of did it for his friends and associates to work on. But he created it and he wrote it uh, and I wrote an article for that and I think I told the story in there. But I got it from Jack Abel who was a close friend of Woods. Jack went to the Hogarth Cartoon Studio Illustrators slash SDA School 2 in 1948. I think he was just behind Wood. I think Wood was like, I don't know, a, somehow senior to Jack Abel, barely. But Jack told a story somewhere I picked up and reported it uh, was that he he related that he knew Wood back at the old school in 1948 and that what they would do for entertainment is they'd go out to a bar and get drunk. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't it. Now, these are all, these are all veterans coming out of World War II. Right. They're all going to school on the GI Bill. All right? Mm -hmm. After school, what do they do? They go out to the bar and they get drunk. Right. (laughs) you know, just like they would do if they were on leave from the military. You know, what do you do? You go out to the bar and get drunk. You might see if you can pick up a girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, But what they would also do is they get in fistfights. They didn't get in fistfights because there was a problem. They got into fistfights because that was part of the nightly entertainment. Right. <laughs> That's the original fight club. Yeah. G.I.'s coming back from World War II. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do on a Friday night? Go get drunk and get in a fist fight. What else are you going to do? Right. <laughs> you know? A girl, that's what you do after you get home. Yeah. When you, while you're out, you drink and you get in a fist fight. So that was funny. So so he goes on this. That's my backstory leading up. He goes on this vacation, the, a mad trip. They called them the mad trips. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one trip, he was starting to have the problem with the migraines. And so... Uh, and he was drinking. He drank the whole trip. Mm. He drank the whole trip. Okay. He's he's a liberal. All right. He's a big FDR fan. Mm-hmm. And he's 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 uh, you know a, a very much for civil rights. Uh, you know he's he's a very you know you know the furthest thing from a racist alright mm-hmm. and and Orlando told me Orlando was Italian and from a very conservative family and he said that Wood totally within a few years Wood totally turned him around he was coming from a right wing political conservative fa- Italian family and he says Wood taught him and woke him up to a, a liberal philosophy over a course of a few years while working with Wood. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but have you ever known somebody that was drunk? <laughs> yes. 
did they say something when they were drunk that they never would have said when they were sober? Yes. <laughs> did you believe that what they said when they were drunk was the real film and the person you knew all your life that you had known until you saw him drunk was not the real film? Unfortunately, yes, yeah. <laughs> what? The... You think they're, you think they're, you think, do you believe the old adage that, uh, that the way you act when you're drunk is the real you? Yeah. <laughs> you think that's true? I think so. When you're, but... <laughs> when you're drunk, is that the real you? Well, it, it, it emphasizes whatever the real you is. I'll put it that way. That's how my feelings well, about it. But it anyway, be, it, <laughs> go it, ahead. It, it may be some side of it. Yeah. Okay? It probably wouldn't come out if there wasn't something in you that, you know, is escaping. But it's not your best self. Correct. I agree. And, and because something ridiculous comes out when you're drunk that you would never dream of saying when you weren't drunk doesn't mean that you don't mean everything you say when you're sober. Well, that's true. Right? So here's a guy, and this is where Orlando yeah. said this, because this, this story came up to Orlando and says it's absolutely ridiculous. What I'm about to say, I haven't said it yet. Mm-hmm. What Wood did on this trip. Mm-hmm. Okay? Orlando said it's ridiculous. I knew the guy. He was like my brother. This is a guy who fought for for social justice for every person, no matter what their race, religion, creed, or color was. Okay, mm-hmm. Here, and he says this is a guy who was married to a Holocaust survivor. Mm-hmm. All right, this is a guy who returned, who refused to turn his back on Bill Gaines, who was Jewish. Yeah. Because he because he had he felt like he had done him right and he would refuse to turn his back on, on Bill Gates. All right. Mm-hmm. Out of loyalty. Mm-hmm. Right? But on this mad trip, drunk as a skunk, he made some anti Semitic remarks. Ooh. And a lot of the people who worked at Mad, a lot of the, the talent that were on that trip were Jews. Yes. And they their minds were blown. They're like, this is a guy that we have revered as our top uh, talent for all these years. And now he's saying this BS, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of those guys never looked at Wood the same way after that, right? Mm-hmm. I forget what year that was, but it was years before he left. That may have been in 59. Yeah. Okay, he didn't leave till sixty four. Mm-hmm. All right. So some people want to take that story and say that uh, it was over for Wood at Mad when he made some anti-Semitic remark while he was drunk off his butt in nineteen fifty nine in St. Thomas or whatever island they were on. Okay. Mm-hmm. B.S. He didn't leave till sixty four. Yeah. All right. Um. So, but it did affect his working relationship with Feldstein and a couple of the other people there. Mm. All right. And there was one cartoonist, I forget. Who's the guy that's still alive? Who's the oldest guy that's still alive? Oh, Jaffe. (laughs) Jaffe. Okay. It may have been Jaffe. It may have been Mm -hmm. Jaffe. I'm not sure. Uh, There was an interview with Jaffe somewhere. Mm -hmm. But. Mad knew that he was sick with the headaches, and they they suggested that he get one of the other artists to help him. As long as Wood inked it, it would have the Wood look. Yeah. All right. 
so another artist could assist him. At that time, a lot of people think Wood always had assistance. That's not true. Okay, when he worked on Mad, he did not have assistance. Uh, when he had his studio before he was basically full time EC, he had associates in the studio: Joe Orlando and uh, who was the um, Sid Check. Roy Crinkle. Mm-hmm. He had people that worked for him then, mm-hmm. but once he had all the work he could handle coming out of EC, there was no reason for him to keep any assistance on, and he, he didn't have any assistance at that point. He was working out of his house mm. uh, without any assistance. Um, but when he got sick toward the end of MAD, uh, MAD was trying to help, and they suggested a couple guys. And one of the guys was a Jewish guy, and after the thing happened on the trip, that guy said, I don't want to help him anymore. Mm. Okay, so yes, it did affect his working relationship with a few people. Mm-hmm. And because of the the headaches, his, art, his work was suffering. But no doctor could cure the headaches. Right. And nobody could tell him why he was having the headaches. Right? Um, He had a hunch that it had something to do with Matt. Hmm. He could he couldn't put his finger on it. He 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 couldn't say, "Oh, so and so did this, and I can't get over it," or or you know, there I saved the company, and now and they cut my pay because they didn't cut his pay. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't getting a penny more than any of the other guys. He was, they right. were all getting the same rate. And it was a good rate. This is the best rate in the industry. So so he couldn't, and he still he still had all the fondness and respect in the world for Bill Gaines. But something that he could not put his finger on was eating at him. Mm-hmm. I believe that it was that he felt like he was somehow, he had saved the company and somehow was being disrespected. That's that's what I believe it was. Yeah. But he, I don't think it ever got to the point that he consciously thought that way. He he didn't know what it was, but he suspected it was related to Matt. Yeah. So he was looking. There was a guy that was coming around, hanging out uh, at the time, Russ Jones. Okay. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about 1963 now. Mm-hmm. 62, 62, 63. The headaches have been going on now for at least a couple of years, mm. and and so. Um, so the only thing Wood can think of based upon his hunch that it's something to do with MAD is to leave MAD mm-hmm. but that's his best paying account he was also doing steady work for Galaxy Magazine Science Fiction Magazine he was doing a lot of work for Tops. once after he helped to create Mars Attacks he did a lot of work for Tops mm-hmm. uh, for years yeah but but those accounts couldn't compare to Matt. Matt yeah. was the bread and butter, and he also a lot of artists. They're not good businessmen. Men they don't like going out drumming up work. Uh, and really, for for all he had accomplished, people should have beaten beaten down his door trying to get him to do work. And some people did, but he didn't like doing advertising work. You know, it take yeah. a while to go into that. But yeah. you know, Jack Davis handled advertising work fine and he made a fortune out of it Mm -hmm. Wood Wood loved comics that's what he wanted to do and that was his inspiration he did some advertising he liked the money but he didn't enjoy the work because it wasn't it wasn't what his 
his inspirational epiphany was that led him to be a comic book artist. Right. So, um, so this guy, Russ Jones, starts hanging around, and uh, and he would love to do anything with wood. And so he's saying, well, you know, I, I, I really want to leave mad, but, you know, I, I don't have enough work elsewhere. So Jones is like, well, I'll, I'll try to drum up some work. And he says, so, oh, sure, kid, you know, see what you can drum up. <laughs> the problem was Wood was a top-tier talent. And Russ's only connections were like bottom-tier connections, mm-hmm. right? So Russ was connected to Warren very early on. Yeah. Russ was actually involved with helping to create Creepy and to right. talk Warren into publishing a horror comic magazine in the first place. Mm-hmm. Up until then, what, uh, Warren was publishing Famous Monsters, but a lot of people were telling him, the same people who love this stuff would love some, some, some horror comics, and because you're in magazines, you don't have to worry about the comics code, and you can do stuff like EC. Mm-hmm. But... Warren was afraid that if he did it, maybe the comics code would come after him. And if they came after him for creepy, they may also come after him about famous monsters. And so he was he was skittish. Yeah. But they finally convinced him, and he and he launched for creepy. And Russ Jones was the original editor. But by that point, he has actually already kind of burned his bridge with Wood a bit because he had been kind of hanging around Wood for like two years prior to that, from '63. Mm-hmm. And then, and uh, so, but he was looking for some work, but he only knew small accounts. So, but he, out of Warren, before Creepy was launched, he and Wood did the Fumetti for uh, the horror of Party Beach. Oh, yeah. They, I've seen that. They adapted it <laughs> cheap, like a beach blanket bingo with monsters. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, like a Net Funicello and Frankie Avalon on the beach with monsters type of thing. But uh, an imitation of that, you know. The beach movies were very right. popular with the, with the teeny boppers in the 60s. So you got a beach movie that's got a monster in it. Goofiest monster you ever laid eyes on. And um, so somehow Warren got the rights and they were. They adapted it to a, a what they call in Italy a fumetti, which is like comics, but with stills from a film or, or you know, posed photos, and then the word balloons. And uh, and Wood worked on that, and he and he and uh, Russ Jones did the cover together, and uh, and did the book. And Wood actually even bought an airbrush to retouch some of the photos. And it's not, <laughs> wasn't wasn't a tool he usually used, but he, he bought an airbrush just to work on a job, and it paid squat. The pay hmm. was terrible. Hmm. And and then he he talked he talked. Uh, 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 Warren was looking at doing a, uh, a a second magazine on movie monsters because Famous Monsters was a big success. So he launched something called Monster World. Right. And Jones talked him into putting trying out. He says, "Well, if you won't do a full comics magazine, why don't you try a story? We could do an adaptation of a of a movie." You know, just a short instead of the full-length fumetti like the horror monster beats. We could do a short in one of the magazines. So they did an adaptation of the Mummy, mm-hmm. and it ran in Monster World number one, sixty-four, uh, I guess it was. Yeah. That was before Creepy One. That was the first originally produced to be published by Warren monster comic story ever produced, and it's by Wood. Hmm. 
that speaks to Warren's respect for Wood and Warren's interest in making that EC connection. And it led to Creepy, but by the time Creepy was launched, one telling I've heard is that there's two there's two Williamson stories in Creepy One. Mm-hmm. And I've heard it told two ways. There's also a a, a um, Gray Morrow story, very nice Gray Morrow story. Mm-hmm. But Morrow was not EC. The idea was to launch with EC talent. And Morrow was, they had Orlando and Williamson, Frazetta. But Morrow was not an EC talent. He came in right at the end, did some work with Williamson over at Atlas, did a little tiny bit of work with Wood on some of the Galaxy Magazine things. Uh, but it was too, he was too late for EC. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been ta- I've heard it said two ways that either the reason why Morrow got a story in Creepy One or and or the reason there are two Williamson stories is because one of those stories was supposed to be Woods mm. but that Wood had decided he had enough of Russ Jones by then and he and he and actually I heard he, he had enough of Russ Jones and Jim Warren already by then. <laughs> Because the pay was so cheap on the Fumetti, the Horror Beach, and on the Mummy, that he's like, I, I don't want to work. I don't want to work for you know these guys. You know. So anyway, the first thing he did also, um, Jones knew Vince Coletta. Hmm. Vince Coletta was doing a ton of work for Charlton. He did a little work for DC. He wanted to work for Marvel. He knew Stan Lee. I, he may have been. He may have done a little bit of romance work for Stan, but he had not. Coletta had not done any superhero work yet at this point. He was fa- he was most famous for doing romance comics, mm-hmm. but he was doing a lot of work for Charlton. But Charlton was the worst pay in the industry. Mad was the top pay in the industry. Charlton was the worst pay in the industry. <laughs> so Russ mentions to to Coletta that Wood was wanted to leave mad he was looking for work and Coletta's like I can get you I can get him all the work he can handle out of Charlton mm-hmm. the problem is the pay was terrible right and if it had been for anybody else Coletta our friend Vinny Coletta from Joyzy you know what I'm saying <laughs> our, friend, our friend Vinny Coletta want a little piece of it you know wet his beak a little you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. just for <laughs> So, but Coletta knew what's a superstar. Coletta was so juiced thinking that he was proud to have any association with Wood that, oh, I want to do a favor for this guy. So he wasn't going to take a piece that he would have asked for a commission from anyone else. Well, first of all, Wood never would have accepted the work because the pay was so bad in the first place. Right. But he did want to leave mad, so they cranked out a few issues of, of really dirt cheap war comics for Charlton. Uh, and then, and then, um, that's, and when Stan found out that Wood was working in regular comics again, that he wanted him at Marvel. So, but there was a piece, and this is how the story gets mixed up about him leaving. Because it's been rumored that he was fired. He was not fired. Mm. From There 
was a story. It was only a two, like a two-page story. Wood loved, he could mimic any cartoonist style. And he loved doing takeoffs on all the newspaper strips. And he did that a lot of that. And the more that the, the headaches were bothering him, Mad knew that was kind of his happy place. So they would send him a lot of that. And one of those stories uh, was, came in and looked pretty bad. And, and it was, uh, somebody told uh, Bill Pearson at one point had a Xerox of it where you didn't see all the white out and smudges and stuff. You just saw the clean art, the clean line art. Mm-hmm. He said the clean art, uh, he says the line art would have shot okay, but I understand why they rejected it because he had to rework it and retouch it so many times. There was a lot of white out on it and you, and it just looked sloppy. Mm. So, but anyway, so he, he, he did this, this bad story while well, he had one of the headaches. He turned it in and they rejected the story. They didn't reject him. Yeah. They didn't fire him. They rejected the story. Now, here's the funny part of it that I haven't quite been able to piece together. Is I've got a quote, and I talked to Feldstein about this. And Feldstein says, Feldstein says, I saw the pink slip. Hmm. Well, there's two weird things about that. Well, first of all, people think of a pink slip, they think it's somebody getting fired. Usually when you say a pink slip, that's like a notification that you've been fired. Right. All right? But the notification wasn't on wood. It was on this story. Mm. The pink, the, the rejection was on this one story. That it's not sense. on this talent that has been such a, a major value to them all these years that helped to build and save the company. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. The the other strange thing about that comment from Feldstein, which which he told me, uh, he didn't cite what was strange about it. I'm going to cite what's strange about it. He just said, "I saw the pink slip with my own eyes." Okay, <laughs> so the question is, well, who the hell wrote the pink slip? <laughs> Who's the editor? Feldstein is the editor. Yeah. So that what that tells us is it wasn't Feldstein who rejected the piece. Hmm. And as Feldstein was the senior editor, if it had been someone under him, like Nick Meglin, Feldstein could have overwrote it, could have inquired about it. Why is this rejected? You know, could have looked into it. He didn't. He just said he... He happened to see it standing there, sitting on a desk with a pink slip on it, rejected pink slip on it. So, so that's interesting. That's a, a, a little piece of mystery I haven't been able. But we have. But but the statement from Feldstein, what Feldstein told me, reveals that there is a mystery. Uh-huh. Who is it that rejected it? If well, it wasn't Feldstein, well, who would it be? Well, do you think Gaines, do you think Gaines did? It because Gaines, Gaines. You know, it, it wouldn't have been Gaines because uh, Gaines. I'll give you an example why or what Orlando told me. Hmm. Orlando was looking to get work from Mad before Kurtzman left, hmm. and or right after Kurtzman left. Well, this is when they were best friends, and they'd go out to dinner like three or four times every single week, and they would go on vacation together. That's how close they were. Mm -hmm. They went on vacations where they had four beds in a cabin in the woods. 
where they're actually sleeping in the same. All the the two couples are actually sleeping in the same same cabin, you know, without separate rooms. That's how close they were. It's their best friends. But when Orlando asked his best friend, "Hey, what about you know, give me some work on that?" Mm-hmm. Gaines is like, "Well, I never make those decisions because I just don't." I, I think it's important to leave that to the editors. Mm. So I I won't tell the editor to hire you. Mm-hmm. You know you'll have you'll have to talk to you know whether it's Kurtzman or Feldstein at the time. I don't I don't remember if this transpired right before Kurtzman left or right after Kurtzman left. So but but the point there is that Gaines saw his duties as very clear. He managed the business. Right. And it was up to his editor, the editor's job, to handle the, the creative freelancers. Yeah. So, and also because Gaines and Wood had such a great mutual respect for each other, had Gaines broke his own rules and, and done that, uh, first of all, I don't know how it would have come to his attention because there was a point after, and it was probably after the incident on the island trip that Feldstein had a note sent to Wood that from then on he should pick up and drop off his work with uh, Nick Meglin, Hmm. who was the assistant editor. Right. Well, that alone is enough to give Wood uh, a headache. Yeah. Right? Because Feldstein and Wood had made history together in EC. Mm-hmm. Okay? Many of Feldstein's greatest accomplishments were with Wood. Right. Okay? Those guys were a fantastic collab. Just like Kurtzman and Wood was a great collaborative team, Feldstein and Wood was a great collaborative team. And to this day, through all these decades, they are, that's two of the greatest collaborative teams and still to, in the history of comics Feldstein and Wood and Kurtzman and Wood mm-hmm. and so for Feldstein to ignore their history together and that how Wood was a huge part of that history Wood had helped Feldstein in his career that Feldstein's now not even going to pick up a phone and talk to him or wait till the next time he's in the office but it's going to have a note sent to him says you know from now on pick up and drop off your jobs through the assistant editor. That's insulting. <laughs> okay? And I can understand, and Felsen's Jewish, yeah. would, in a drunken stupor, totally separate from his regular character and his sensibilities of social consciousness and his support of civil rights, he mm-hmm. made, while falling down drunk, mm-hmm. a couple of anti-Semitic remarks on this trip. Feldstein decides I don't want to. I don't want to interact with this guy. Mm-hmm. I asked Feldstein about it, mm-hmm. and Feldstein did not connect it to the trip. Not to me, he did. Mm. To me, I actually. Well, he said this in an interview too. This will come real close to something he said, but he said it to me too. Um, he said, "I felt like." Wood kept all his emotions bottled up mm-hmm. and that someday he was going to blow. <laughs> and 
and I didn't, wow. and I was afraid to be around when it happened, or I didn't want to be around when it happened. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's, uh, and I said something to that, and and that wasn't uncommon, you know, post World War Two. You know, mm. you could say the same thing post post uh, uh, Vietnam. You know, guys would come back from war, and they would not want to talk about their experiences. They would not want to talk about what they did, and they would just keep their emotions bottled up. You know. And, you know, a lot of guys never developed a mechanism for discussing anything emotional, whether it's with, with their spouse, a girlfriend. You know, it's, it's like traditional that the girlfriends would have to, like, pull, pull it out of the guy, like pulling teeth to get them to discuss anything that's emotional because it's just like some guys just keep it bottled up. And it was more so then than it is now. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that as as, a, as the male of the species have evolved a little bit uh, sociologically in the last you know since the sixties, where we're we're a little bit more uh, integrated human beings and and hopefully a little bit closer with our our emotions and, and better able to discuss it. You know, with our at least with our girlfriends or spouses. Uh, but um, so you know, a lot of people kept back then kept their emotions bottled up, and Wood was definitely one of them. And mm-hmm. uh, so, but that's what Feldstein said why he was why he uh, wanted him to pick up and drop off his stuff with with uh, uh, Nick Meglin. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed Meglin, and I knew Meglin for years. Yeah. But I inter- I interviewed him specifically for uh, my Wood biography. And so, you know, his input is included in there. And one funny thing he said was, Meglin said, you know, in all the years that I interacted with Wood at MAD, he never made a single change at my request. Hmm. And I said, why do you think that is? And he says, it was his way of telling me without opening his mouth that he was the star and I was still the assistant. Mm. Wow. You know, because he, he, and, but you can see how all that would contribute to the headaches. Yeah. You know, that there there is these bottled up emotions in him. He can't quite put his finger on what the problem is, but he is feeling, even though he's making good money at MAD, and even though nobody's being overtly rude to him he's feeling for what he's done for the company he's feeling disrespected in some regard mm-hmm. but not at Bill Gates they always had the highest respect for each other right uh, but the deterioration of his relationship with Feldstein and 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 even with uh, uh, and with um, Nick Meglin yeah in fact Nick told me Sometimes he didn't want to talk about it. And some there were times when Feldstein didn't want to talk about Wood either. Because, and Feldstein, to tell you the truth, Feldstein was jealous of Wood. Yeah. He was jealous of Wood, and, and he was jealous of Al Williamson as well. Mm. Because, and he would said, he said to me, he says, why are they so much more popular than I am? <laughs> he asked me that point blank to my face. <laughs> why are Wood and Williamson better remembered? He says, I did as much science fiction work as they did. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, but, Al, <laughs> your work looks like the 50s. 
<laughs> and it's and it's perfect for the fifties. Yeah. And it's great when anyone who loves fifties sci-fi comics, you're part. You're you're a key element there. Yeah. But they kept working, and and in a way they were kind of ahead of their times, even though they were working in the fifties. And in in hindsight, we can see Woods' work and see a certain fifties look to it. But at the same time. His his hardware, his beautiful women, kind of were forward thinking. They had yeah. they had a, a very modern fashion to them that kept them looking fresh, to- all the way through the sixties. Yeah, it was more timeless. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and Williamson stuff was grounded in life drawing and classical illustration and things that are more timeless. Whereas Feldstein's artwork was absolutely of the time right. his stuff screamed 1948 to, to 1958 you know yeah. and so and and he heard me on that a bit and I said plus you stopped drawing yeah you you became an editor you were you're best remembered even more than a writer for mad you're actually best remembered as the top editor right and people will think of the artist first They'll think of the writer second, and they'll think of the editor last. Yeah. And I had I had a similar conversation with Julie Schwartz. He kept saying, "Why is Dan Lee more popular than I am?" I said, "Because you're the great DC editor. He's the great Marvel editor, but he also has a claim to co-creator on so many of the characters, and he also promoted his name everywhere he could." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, Julie, I've seen some of Julie's edited scripts. And some of the writers he worked with, he did very minimal edits to. And some of them, he basically rewrote the story. Mm-hmm. There's some of his scripts, like half of it is, is Julie's writing. And he could easily put in for co-writer and extra pay, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. He knew how rare it is to have longevity as a full-time in-house employee in, at a major comics company. Mm-hmm. And he was respectful of that, and he wasn't looking to squeeze an extra buck on the side. Right. Uh, Stan, on the other hand, was in fear that he was going to lose his job, and he wanted to build his name recognition as big as he could. He figured if he got let go by Martin Goodman, his best bet was for a newspaper strip. So right. Stan did become a member of the National Cartoonist Society. He was the only guy at Marvel that was a member of the National Cartoonist Society. And he had he had a uh, strip um, about some Cub Scouts. It's about the it was like a, a, a den mother. I forget it, the name of the strip. But he had like a little humor strip. Uh, Mrs. 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 It's not Smith, but I'll say Smith. Mrs. Smith and her cubs. You know, it's about a, a, a Boy Scout, a Cub Scout den mother, and all the little Cub Scouts. You know, very clean, wholesome stuff. Mm-hmm. Not the kind of stuff they were publishing in comics in '60. You know, from you know '53 to '62 or whatever. So, um, but but Julie never looked for that and mm-hmm. and then later that's why Stan was so famous and, and Julie you know you had to be a real reader to realize oh ye editor from DC yeah that's right. the man right <laughs> well uh, what, what were we talking about leaving I think I covered the leaving we covered so leaving he, but um, you know we've been now what talk- they said what they said was 
something. I think Gaines said this somewhere. Yeah. Well, uh, when I interviewed Meglin, mm-hmm. a lot of people at MAD thought that maybe Wood was fired. Mm-hmm. And and that's one reason why Feldstein said, well, I saw the pink slip. I said, well, the information I've got was that the pink slip was on the story, not on the talent, mm-hmm. you know. And so he says, oh, yeah, I guess I guess it would have been that way, you know. But for some reason he thought, oh, I saw the pink slip, you know, Wood got fired. But it wasn't, Feldstein didn't fire him, so he didn't know what went down. Was that Woody's well, last story, though? I mean, if it was the last... Story. Uh, it didn't run. Okay. It did not run. Okay. But it did he ran, do any work beyond that? Later, a okay. few years later, okay. I think it ran in an annual, uh, largely redrawn by Clark. Oh. I believe I think Clark redrew it. Mm. And uh, but somewhere I think that Wood had a Xerox of it. And Pearson had it for a while. It probably got ate up in the fire. But I don't know. I can't remember if I saw it or not. Yeah. But Pearson said, well, you know, a clean stat of it. It would have shot okay, but I can see why they rejected it because there was lots of white out and smudges and stuff. like. You could tell that he had reworked it many times and it still yeah. didn't look too good. Well, but Pearson thought it was okay for publication. But they did not run it. Marvel okay. didn't uh, – uh, Matt did not run it. Okay. But – they took the story. I don't know if Clark worked from a copy of Wood's version. I believe his layouts were pretty much Wood's layout. I think he had a copy of what Wood did, mm-hmm. and I don't know if he lightboxed it and just re-inked it, or if he drew it but looking at Wood's layouts. But I believe, I think I had it. it I can't say specifically, but I haven't looked at it recently. But I have reason to believe that he did reference Wood's version when Clark redrew it a couple of years later. Right. So it didn't run. Um, but ba- based but on was, what you've said this whole but time... But that was the excuse he had. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is like, based on what you said, is this an excuse that he used? Because yeah. he wanted to leave anyway, and right. this was convenient to say, okay, they're rejecting this piece. It sounds like a rejection of me, or may have taken it that way. I'm getting out well, of here, you know, he, kind he of, was, <laughs> but I don't but know. He was, he was, he was looking for an excuse to leave. Right. And he okay. had, he, he had, uh, his, his short lived friend, uh, Russ Jones out trying to drum up some stuff. Right. Uh, that's also, if you ever see those historic pieces, the, the Joan of Arc and the Cleopatra mm-hmm. and stuff like that, uh, that's what those pieces, uh, Russ had a connection at a small-time newspaper syndicate. Uh, it may have been the same syndicate that either ran the Skymaster strip or the one that, that ran the Johnny Comic for Zeta strip, but uh, it was a small syndicate. Mm-hmm. And so, so they had the idea of doing a Sunday feature that was on a different historical subject every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really traditional comics with word balloons, but uh, it served as a you know it's kind of it's really they were beautiful pieces, but Wood was still suffering at that time with the headaches, and it took him took them a while to get those samples done, and the syndicate was afraid. Hey, if we don't get the samples on a timely manner, you know when you're doing a newspaper strip, there is no option to be late. Uh, mm-hmm. They actually penalize you. They charge you a big fee 
if you're ever late on a newspaper strip. Right. And uh, and so and and most people who do strips, they before they ever launch the strip, they try to be like a month in advance, right. just in case. Because otherwise, if you get sick, you're 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 messed up. Yeah. You know, you want to go on vacation. You're gonna to have to get. A, you're either gonna to have to draw ahead to cover those dates, or you're gonna to have to get someone to fill in for you. You know, while you while you go on vacation, or if you're sick. Yeah. So anyway, so that's what those were done for. That was another thing, you know, along with the Fumetti for Warren that uh, that Russ brought in. But none of that stuff ever paid off. That none of that, you know. So he he disassociated himself with Russ Jones uh, right about the time Creepy One hit. Uh, and then, but but uh, but then, Stan found out that uh, Wood had uh, left Mad, and and he was he's like we 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 want him at Marvel, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how uh, that's how you know he got the invitation on Daredevil. The Daredevil is going to be a long talk, and I think maybe we got to take at least another break now, if not put it off for another week. We can save it for another show, and. Uh... <laughs> But this is very good uh, for a couple shows here. So, and I don't mind having you back again as a guest, and we can record it at another time. Uh, so let's kind of wrap it up and just say, you know, uh, how can people get in touch with you and, uh, you know, get a hold of your projects or anything you're working on? Yeah, watch for Wood Books. Uh, most of the books that the Wood Estate are doing now are either through Vanguard and we've got a whole series reprinting a lot of his early works. We've got um, we've got a collection, the science fiction, which is called uh, Strange Worlds of Science Fiction, Wallywood, Strange World of Science Fiction. There's a crime and horror collection called Wallywood, Eerie Tales of Crime and Horror. There's a Jungle Comics collection, which includes Animan. Uh, and um, there's a romance collection. Uh, there is... Um, we, our most recent one is a, a war collection. That's called Daredevil Aces. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of Wood's uh, military stories, he was a paratrooper, and he loved airplanes, and so most of his military stories were um, airplane-related. So we call that uh, Daredevil Aces, which is actually an old pulp, uh, was an old pulp magazine and the guy who had the rights to that magazine let us use the title, um, revive the title for the Wood Collection. And that just came out not too long ago, uh, around, um, I think it was around New Year's. Mm-hmm. That's a great collection. Like most of these books, the books I've just named, they're all around 200 pages. Mm-hmm. And they're the, they are the most complete. Now, a lot of them are like the, the Wood, I mean, the War, the, the Crime and Horror, and the science fiction, I regularly say, this is basically the complete collection of his 1950s, with whatever the genre is. Here, here's the complete collection of his 1950s non-EC crime and horror comics. Here's the complete collection of his 1950s non-EC science fiction comics. Here is the complete collection of his uh, non-EC uh, war comics. But we have articles in there about his EC War comics, and we have some examples of them. We're just not doing the full-length story of, of, of the of the 
the EC material. Right, but right. we did have arrangements, like on the War Book, we made arrangements with DC to include uh, some War comics he did for DC, and we also included that uh, Charlton material that we we mentioned uh, earlier. Um, so those were all good books. We also did a collect some uh, a nice book back around Christmas called the Hollywood Christmas Book. And that's great for all ages. It's a charming little book. It's about the size of a little golden book, but a little bit better production quality, coated paper, uh, laminated cover. But it's that size, like a little children's book. It's good for all ages, great stocking stuffer year after year after year. And uh, that's that's uh, really sweet. Uh, some books that would state places with fanographics, Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we there's the ultimate collection of uh, canon is out there. Uh, we also did the only time, as, as I said earlier, he had a third uh, military newspaper strip. He had canon Sally Forth, and he had a third one, which was a western called Shattuck. That mm. material has never been seen mm. in America. It's never been collected into a book before, but we collected that uh, not too long ago through uh, Fanographics, and and that was almost all shot from the original art. Mm, wow. Uh, okay. and that also includes some of the earliest Howard Chaikin art and also Dave Cockrum. Wow. So Wood wrote, Wood created the character. He wrote the stories. Uh, he got Chaikin in there to pencil at first, and he and Wood did some of the inks on, on the Chaikin stuff. He also had Jack Abel working, doing some of the inks in there. They were sharing a studio at the time, about 1971, out in Long Island. And uh, then after, but he had to let Chaikin go. Uh, that was the first job that Chaikin got credit on. He was working as an assistant before that to Gil Kane, but he got no credit on anything. This is the first thing where Chaikin actually got credit for penciling. And then, but Chaikin admitted, he says, my stuff was pretty sloppy in those days, and I don't blame Woody for letting me go at all. And then he turned it over to Dave Cockrum for pencils, and then Jack Abel did most of the inks, but Wood was still writing the strip, and, and he created it. So that, that one came out through Fantagraphics. We just did ultimate X-rated Wallywood collection. Yay. <laughs> and that, that came out through Fantagraphics, mm-hmm. and that is called Cons de Fay, which is French, mm-hmm. and it's also, uh, it's got it's got two titles, the French title Cons de Fay, and then the English is the erotic art of Wallace Wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a recent uh, release through Fantagraphics, and it's uh, readily available as we speak. And it goes from stuff he did in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and uh, and this last material before he died. He died at the, toward the end of 81. So in 80 and 81, mm-hmm. when his health was deteriorating, he 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 was he could practically do very little but X-rated stuff because the, the X-rated subject matter helped to sell it as well because the quality of the work wasn't as good mm. as what he people other people were expecting. So, but that uh, that book, all you know, the rest of it up until that point, the last few stories, the last few stories are sad, and it's sad to see you know how far the mighty have fallen and see a brilliant talent you know whose health failing him. But the funny thing is, is that if you read the stories, you can see his love of the medium, his, his <laughs> humor, 
Mm-hmm. His humor was still intact. Yeah. Uh, his his love of the medium was intact. He just his eyes and his hands just weren't working to produce as, the, as much the quality that we had all come to know and love over so many years. But all the rest of the book, you know, it's like a two hundred page book, is all top quality from the fifties, sixties, seventies, and that's got a lot of classic stuff in there. Uh, there there was a sequel he did to my my world called My Word. Yeah, I've seen that one. <laughs> That yeah, so that's 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 yeah. in there. Yeah, uh, and then he did for some uh, men's magazines in the '60s. He did some uh, humorous takeoffs on some fairy tales and stuff like that. Like, yeah. uh, well, he did a takeoff on Alice in Wonderland it's called Malice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. It's basically like something he would have done for Mad Magazine, except that there's you know it's you know there's. Was topless or whatever, bottomless or whatever, you know. <laughs> and uh, so that's that's interesting stuff. Um, we also did through Fantagraphics a collection of Witsian. So oh, cool. you get the you get the wood material in there, but you get all the other great artists there. You got Williamson, Frazetta, Steve Ditko. Uh, there's a little bit of um, uh, Steranko in there, Crandall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, you get some uh, then there's some underground guys in there too uh, so uh, Art Spiegelman and uh, uh, Randy uh, I can't think of the guy's name but there's some he was that was Wood was very open to the underground comics movement and they considered him a, a father to the movement because they were all inspired by men and that's why if you look at some of the underground comics a lot of them mimic the EC like the three little heads on the sides and stuff like that or mm-hmm. you know they they like to design their covers to look like old dcs because that's that's the stuff that they grew up on and they right, loved right yeah. uh so, so they all of those underground guys they practically worshipped wood and kurtzman those those guys were like their their idols <laughs> uh on on uh we're easy to follow on facebook we had there was a page for the wallace wood estate okay right so Wallace Wood Estate on Facebook. We have a website, but it's not real active, which is uh, uh, wallacewoodestate.com. You can't, uh, if I, but really the Facebook, it's a lot easier to interact with, uh, with us on, on there. And, and we cover, we cover, there's tons of material there. We're going to have to collect it into a couple of books. But there's great stuff. There's also a couple of wood uh, groups on Facebook. There's one called Wally Wood. There's one called Wallace Wood. There's another page called Wallace Wally Wood, and that's a good that's a good page too. So yeah, so I'm I'm all over Facebook. I'm also there's a EC group called EC Fan Addicts. I'm very yeah. active there. There's also a couple of historian groups, uh, comic book historians, and. Uh, comics history there's another one that's for real serious historians um, but um, so yeah very lot, uh, easily accessible through uh, through Facebook and there's also a Vanguard Productions page on, on Facebook so All right, that's good. it all right, thank you very much, David, for being my guest today. Definitely, we'll have you back. We can do, uh, go on from the mad days to the rest of his career, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening, and thank you again, J. David Spurlock, for being my special guest these past two weeks. Episode number 56 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions.
If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. of your lewd jeweled boob to